3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Grace Wan in for Mina Kim. There's a certain monotony to living in a constant state of alarm, writes author Manjula Martin in her memoir, The Last Fire Season. Like many Californians, Martin has become familiar with the unease and uncertainty of living with wildfire, which is no longer limited to just a season. We'll talk to Martin about what it means to live in a world perpetually on the cusp of burning down. That's coming up after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. In the summer of 2020, wildfires scorched 4 million acres of California. Smoke trapped by the atmosphere blocked the sun and turned the sky orange. Authorities coined a new term, the gigafire, to try and capture the immensity of the disaster. And it is capturing that immensity which Manjula Martin is able to do so beautifully in her new memoir, The Last Fire Season, A Personal and Pyronatural History. When she fled her home during that hot, dry summer, COVID was raging, and the natural world to which many people had migrated to for space and social distancing was rebelling against its inhabitants. As Martin notes, we've entered the pyrocene, the age of fire, and she joins us this morning to talk about what that means and how that feels. Welcome to Forum, Manjula Martin.
2: Hi, it's great to be here.
3: Well, your book is truly beautiful, and I'm so glad we get a chance to talk to you about it. Uh, It's centered on the wildfires that ripped through the state in 2020, and I wanted you to remind us, I mean, it wasn't so long ago, but it feels like a thousand fires ago, um, (laughs) about what happened in August 2020, what those fires were, where they were.
2: Sure, yeah. Um, August 2020, um, there was a massive lightning storm, a dry lightning storm, which means no rain, as I'm sure many in the Bay Area recall. Um, And... The lightning simultaneously ignited. I think it was like 600 named wildfires around Northern California. Um, that was actually considered a pretty early start to what we call the fire season. Like normally, as folks know, we get our biggest fires in September, October, even into November. Um, so it started with a bang. <laughs> <laughs> um, and during that time, I um, I live in Sonoma County. I evacuated along with a bunch of thousands of other people, Um, and I ended up going to Santa Cruz, which is where I grew up, and there were also very large and very destructive fires burning in the mountains there. Um, Going in, so those fires burned for a while. Uh, There continued to be really bad fires Uh, into September. In late September, up in Sonoma County, there um, was a fire called the Glass Fire in Sonoma and Napa that was extremely destructive. And so, and there were also huge fires like in the Sierra National Forest. And basically, it did feel as though there was like a ring of fire (laughs) around the state. Um, as I'm sure everyone here
3: remembers. <laughs> I mean, I when I picked up your book, of course I remembered it. I lived through the fires, but I was I was kind of shocked about what, how little I remembered about it just because it it's, yeah. fire seems like such a constant thing. And you know you talk about the fact that you were living in West Sonoma County and you and your husband Max fled. And a lot of us would think, okay, I'm just gonna go to my family home. Um, I'm gonna find some shelter there. But as you point out, your family home in Santa Cruz was also on fire. And I wonder, what did it feel like to have this um, concept? There was, like, no place to go home for you.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, my specifically where my parents live was not on fire, but they had evacuated because of the smoke. The, the Santa Cruz Mountains were on fire, and the fire came very close to the town and burned a lot of neighborhoods, including the one I was born in, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it really was... It, you know, in some ways, it was a continuation of that feeling of early COVID where, like, it felt like nowhere was safe, right? Like, you couldn't go, you couldn't be inside because, you know, COVID would spread inside. And then suddenly you couldn't be outside because there was smoke everywhere. Um, and so it really was a, an odd feeling of, like, dislocation, Um and you know, for me, I am a person of many privileges. Like I have a home and I'm middle class um, and I have a lot of like race privilege and I have education. And so for me, that was a kind of newer feeling than it is for some other people in the world. Um, and uh, I tell you, it wasn't a good feeling. Yeah,
3: I can imagine. And your family ends up holding up in a um, kind of an Airbnb situation. And You had a go bag, as one does when they live in fire country. Um, but I thought this was so apt. You write, you were ready for an apocalypse, but not for a sleepover. Yeah. And what what does that mean exactly? How did that manifest?
2: I mean, part of the world we live in is that they're all different kinds of disasters and states of precarity happening all the time, you know. Um, And so being prepared for them can be kind of confusing. Um, I had a go bag that was like an earthquake kit because Mm -hmm. I grew up in Santa Cruz and I used to live in San Francisco. And when I moved to Sonoma County, um, we never really converted it to a fire kit. Um, The first time we evacuated, uh, which was in twenty. 18, I want to say, yeah, the Kincaid fire, Um, we didn't have a go bag. Um, And then in the August fires in 2020, during the lightning fires, we actually had the go bag out because we were talking about getting it ready for fire season. (laughs) Um, And part of what we did that first day of the lightning fire was to get it ready. Um, But then, you know, I found I had like, gloves for clawing through rubble <laughs> and, like, emergency blankets and, like, MREs and, you know, like, hardcore medical supplies and, like, a stash of antibiotics and stuff like that. Um, but I wasn't actually thinking about what would actually happen in an evacuation if, like, it wasn't an apocalypse scenario, which is basically that I'm going to sleep somewhere else. Um So, you know, as I say in the book, like, I didn't have toothpaste (laughs) Um, or like my, you know, favorite kind of hair product or whatever. Um, So there's a funny scene in the book where Max goes to the grocery store in Santa Cruz and to get that stuff. And he comes back and he's like, you know, they asked me if I was an evacuee. Mm. And I said, yes. And it was he was like surprised by that. You know,
3: the reason they asked him is because he got a discount. (laughs) <laughs> uh, to get all the toothpaste on the shampoo that yeah. you needed. Well, I mean, I have one of those disaster bags. I got it in the KQED pledge, nice. um, but I've never had to use it. And I wonder, did the act of preparing or kind of preparing for disaster offer any salve when you actually were in that disaster? Um,
2: mm, not hugely, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be honest. Um. I mean, it's nice to know, you know, like I have in my go bag, I also have like a change of clothes and stuff like that, that I think is, is far more practical in some ways than a first aid kit, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and so it's nice to know that there is something that I can grab on my way out the door. Um, that said, as a lot of people know, like when you're in an evacuation scenario for wildfire, like sometimes you have warning, frequently you have warning. Sometimes you don't, and that's like a different scenario, and it's not one I've experienced. A lot of people in the North Bay have in 2017 Mm -hmm. and again in 2020. Um, But so you know i have the actual go bag and then i also have like a random tote bag of like my favorite clothes that i mm. threw in there and then i have a bag of books cuz i'm a nerd and i want books and you know yeah. and so so the go bag kind of turns into a go pile <laughs> um, and i don't know i don't find it to be comforting but i find it to be like um you know it's just a thing that helps me
3: sort of uh deal with the reality of it, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, those those fires raged for weeks, as you said, and you know during that time, you and your husband are constantly preparing for evacuation and evacuating and then coming back, and it's this constant state of being alert. Um, and you write, now that we lived inside nonstop disaster, preparing for it felt hollow to me. It doesn't matter, I thought. It's already happened. It's happening. And I wonder, could you read from your book about living in that constant heightened state of pre- preparation?
2: Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, this is a, a little bit from the, in the month of October in the book, which is the book follows the fire season. So it's August, September, October, November. Um and this is a, a time when there was a lot of false starts, which is you know when there's a small fire that then gets extinguished. Um, and where I live in the forest, we have a, a firehouse siren that rings very loudly <laughs> um, anytime. Actually, anytime anyone calls nine one one, so it's not even necessarily a fire. Um, and this that's to sort of set the scene for this passage. These were the days of sleeping with the phone plugged in, charging next to the bed. Then they were the days of not sleeping at all. The heat too heavy, the wind too loud, tension bearing down on my jaw until something inside my head shifted and my shoulders became granite. Every night before bed, I readied the bags, one tote bag of clothes and my charged up laptop computer, bra and inhaler in my purse, ready to grab. Keys and mask by the door as always headlamp next to me on the bedside table, the backpack full of our camping stuff, the actual go bag by its side. Then I tidied up the living room as though I were leaving on a vacation and I wanted it to be neat when I came home. My response to the siren had always been anxiety, nerve synapses fired wildly, senses on alert, animal fear, fight or flight, On nights when the siren woke me with its urgent lament, I rose and stalked the windows of the house like a cat, looking for signs of smoke above the tree line. I opened the front door and smelled the night and listened for unusual sounds. Bad wind, helicopter blades overhead, the monstrous roar that wildfire survivors talk about in interviews. I looked for my leather shoes, Returning to the bedroom, I put a pair of linen pants on the floor and pre-rumpled them so that the legs were ready to step into. There were an estimated 11 million people living in the wildland urban interface in California alone. I imagined each of us doing this performance of anxiety every night until it rained.
3: Well, I think that really captures what people go through, what you went through. Um, in that moment. And there's a ritual to it. And I see the monotony in it as well. Um, And I I think you would say it it was soothing, but not soothing.
2: Yeah, I mean, that was something that presented like a little bit of a craft challenge, actually, in (laughs) writing the book, was that it turns out that, you know it is kind of a repetitive experience. You get, you do get a little bit used to it. And in some ways, it can feel comforting to do all the things every time you think you're going to have to do all the things, you know.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so yeah, I, I had to figure out ways to sort of convey the repetition without actually making anyone bored Um, hopefully I was successful the writers
3: craft the writers craft Um, get the idea across but don't bore people Um, we're talking with Manjula Martin who has a new memoir the last fire season a personal and pyro natural history in it she writes of the uneasy and at times terrifying coexistence Californians have with fire we want to hear from you. Have you adapted to living year-round with the threat of wildfire? What habits have you formed? Or what rituals have you changed? And if you have a go bag, what's in it? And how have you prepared for disaster? You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on social channels at KQED Forum. Or give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You're listening to Forum. I'm Grace Wan, in Fermina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. We're talking with Manjula Martin, whose new memoir is The Last Fire Season, a personal and pyronatural history. In it, she writes about the uneasy and at times co- terrifying coexistence Californians have with wildfire. And we want to hear from you. How have you adapted to living year round with the threat of wildfire? What rituals have changed for you? Or what habits have you formed? And have you fled from a wildfire? What was that experience like, and how has that experience impacted your day to day life today? You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on our social channels at kqed.forum or give us a call now, 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. So, Manjula, your book is titled The Last Fire Season. How has that term "fire season," which was coined by Cal Fire, I think, how, how has that come to mean so much more than just fire season?
2: Yeah, I mean, sadly, it's not a it's not a literal t- title, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but if um, only yeah I mean I, you know anyone in California or in the West is familiar with the idea of fire season, and in researching it for the book, I actually was it was difficult to pin down sort of the official term it's really become a part of the vernacular and it may, can mean different things to different people, but you know roughly speaking, literally it means um, the dry months of the year when we don't get rain and when fuels are dry and winds are high that drive wildfire ignition. Um, traditionally where I live, that's been September, October, sometimes into November. Um, you know, one of the things that we're all experiencing is that, uh, because of a mix of factors, one of which is climate change, um, you know, the fire seasons are getting worse and they're getting longer and less predictable, like all the seasons, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think in recent years, officials have become referring to it as a fire year, instead of a fire season. Mm -hmm. People still use fire season, like the local fire department in Santa Rosa just recently declared an end to the fire season there in December. Um, But it's really sort of become a fire year, and I think that idea that because of extreme weather and a history of sort of, um, you know, unwise fire policies... A fire could happen at any time, given the right circumstances. Fire is just a reaction. It happens when there are, you know, certain weather conditions and certain conditions on the ground.
3: There's a, there's a belief that if we go to war with fire, you know, we can win. And I mean, Ooh. I recall during these fires being sort of obsessed with the helicopters and all the tanker drops, you know, yes. thinking, oh, this is the moment. This is when we're going to get a handle on this. But tell us how we fight fires, who's fighting it. And I mean, are they winnable? Oh, that's a big topic. Um, And
2: I should say, like, I'm not an expert in fire suppression by any means. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did uh, talk to some firefighters and prescribed fire folks for my book, and I did spend some time um, looking into it. And, you know, generally, um, I would venture to say, as a non-expert, like, these fires aren't particularly fightable, the big gigafires that we're having. We don't actually put them out. We just try to keep them from spreading. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gets more and more complicated as they get bigger and there are more of them and, you know, they're um, coming into more populated areas. Um, and so, I mean, short answer is not really winnable, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in california a a lot of our firefighters are people who are incarcerated Mm. um and they are making i think it's like it's changed since i wrote the book but i think it's like a couple bucks a day Mm. um and you know have often have difficulty um finding employment as firefighters after they get out because they have a criminal record um there was recently a bill that is helping with that but it still can be a struggle um and so, you know, we're taking some of like the most marginalized folks in our society and like throwing them literally into the fire um, yeah. and expecting, and with, and, you know, firefighting is also this very military structure um, by necessity, of course, because like you need some sort of way to organize things. Um, but sort of, you know, you're taking all these sort of like marginalized folks and putting them on the front lines and expecting that to do what? Like be a sustainable solution?
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's go to the phones. We've got Mark from Santa Rosa here to talk about fire. Um, Mark, uh, welcome to Forum. Tell us what your story Thank is. You? Yeah.
5: Okay. Well, I live in Santa Rosa and we lost our house in the October 2017 fire. And this so is a perfect time of year for everyone to know Uh, Two months after the fire, we went to put up our Christmas tree and ornaments only to realize, of course, we had lost all of our ornaments. And most people, I think, have a certain number of ornaments and decorations that are precious, that are irreplaceable, that were made by children 50-plus years ago. And I suggest that those ornaments go in a special labeled box and go with your go bag.
3: Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good idea, Mark. And what was it like when you returned to the the place where your home was?
5: Well, it was several days before we were able to return. The insurance company had sent representatives out. Uh, we were able to get past the police uh, barricade uh, with our identification. And um, we were just among a group of people. Uh, the entire neighborhood was gone. And um, it was uh, more practical than anything else. It was it was seeing what trees what were left in and, and what might be salvageable. And there were neighbors wearing hazmat suits going through rubble and looking for precious gems that would not burn and and perhaps anything that would be would be left in the rubble.
1: Mm.
3: And I mean, has that experience changed how you live day to day, Mark?
5: Well, it definitely did. Um, I, had a, I could only drive one car myself, had to leave a car I used for my business behind, and in that car there was a large bunch of correspondence letters and things that I felt like I needed to get to that week. Like many of us do, you open something up and you go, i got to get to this, i got to get to that. And all of those burned in the fire, and of course I couldn't remember what they were, and the result of that was nothing. So it really told me that quite often things we feel the urgency to get to are not urgent. And out of maybe 15 or 20 things I thought I had to get to, one or two of them did get back a hold of me because they were important. And the rest of it wasn't important. And that's been a lesson ever since.
3: Oh, that's a really good one, Mark. Thanks for sharing your story with us um, and imparting that level of wisdom. I mean, and that's something that you talk about, Madhula, in terms of just understanding this fire. Is that sometimes instead of focusing on the present anxiety, you need to look out a little bit farther? That was something that your garden, which uh, is around your house, helped you to do.
2: Yeah, um, you know, I think for, you know, I'm I. Losing my home isn't something that's happened to me yet, Um, so I'm not familiar with that specific experience, and I'm really sorry for your loss, Mark, and everyone who's had that happen. Um, For me, the way that I was really sort of coping with anxiety and uh, grief about fire was in my interactions with the landscape, you know, my interactions with what we call the natural world. Um, And for me, gardening was a huge part of that. my previous book was a gardening book, actually, Yeah. Um, that I co-wrote with my dad, who's a, a gardening teacher at UC Santa Cruz. Um, and when I moved to my current spot, I had planted uh, a bunch of roses, a flower garden, and a tiny orchard of about six fruit trees. Um, which is no small feat in itself, if you live in the redwoods, I can tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Um, You know, and it was really through my experiences gardening that I really started to look at the land around me and think about sort of the ecosystem and the ways that the ecosystem was in crisis. I mean, part of it was just like literally touching, you know, the land and touching plants and being out there. Um, and part of it was sort of the long-term perspective that gardening can give you. Like, you're not thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow or even next season. You're doing something to a plant, and then maybe you have to wait a year to see how it responds, you know. And you're really thinking sort of time becomes a different thing in the garden. And that was really uh, illuminating to me to sort of think about the long-term health of the landscape, And honestly, kind of to remove myself from the equation, too.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh, Karen writes, I lived in Sonoma County for four years. One really big adjustment was feeling I was not able to travel during fire season so I could Mm -hmm. be home in case I needed to pack up pets and evacuate. I'm grateful I never sustained any loss, but the stress of the pending danger kept my nerves on edge for months. I wonder, I mean, you, you know, Manjula, you didn't lose a house during those 2020 fires. And you said, I haven't lost my house yet, <laughs> which suggests to me that you are kind of living on this precipice of dread. How do you how do you navigate or mitigate that day to day?
2: Um, I mean, how do any of us navigate the dread of living in, you know, late capitalism (laughs) on earth Um, um, and climate change. I think, you know, it's it's an up and down battle for me. um, The only things that I have found that really help with that are engagement um, with the issues and forming relationships with other people in my community who are also engaged with those issues, Um, whether that's like, you know, learning more about uh, tending the land that I live on and setting it up for uh, recovery if there is a fire or you know learning from in- indigenous folks who are working with cultural fire and understanding what they're doing and how they're leading in, that, in those issues um, or just like talking with your neighbors you know
3: Mm-hmm. Well, tell me a little bit about this. You talk about this concept of a cultural burn. I mean, since the fires, uh, these big wildfires in 2017, there's been a lot of talk about controlled burns and making sure that we can, you know, get rid of the deadwood in the forest, the duff on the um, the ground. But there's this also idea of a controlled burn that's a cultural burn. Tell us what that is. And I mean, I think you witnessed one.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um Uh, So, yeah, there are a lot of different terms when it comes to what is generally called good fire. Um, Prescribed burning is just that. It's uh, burning with a goal of reducing fuels in the forest. And it's something that is becoming much more um, accepted and much more widespread um, since recent years, which is great. Um, Prescribed burning can not only reduce fire danger, but sort of, um, you know, reset the cycles of the land, uh, and allow them to sort of renew in a healthy way. Um, You know, California is a fire adapted landscape, uh, or ecosystems, Um, most of the ecosystems where we live require fire to remain healthy. Um, And after the colonization of California and the genocide of the indigenous people then living here, um, fire was basically suppressed you know. Um, The folks who lived here before colonization used fire as part of their land management. It was a regular practice that people did and they did it not just to prevent wildfires but and I should add they still do it not just to prevent wildfires um, but for all sorts of reasons. Um, So generally nowadays like the terms that people use When people say cultural fire, it's sort of like a general way to refer to indigenous use of fire. Um, And for the book, I was able to interview a few folks who work in cultural fire. And I talked to a woman named Margot Robbins, who's an amazing leader um, in the cultural fire world. Um, She heads up uh, an organization called the Cultural Fire Management Council that's based in the Yurok Nation up north. Um, and she's also an educator, so she's a wonderful person to sort of spread word about this. Um, and she explained it as like cultural fire. She said, "What she said was, fuel reduction can be a byproduct of cultural fire, mm. um, but it's not always the only goal. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, like a goal might be to regenerate egg corn growth to use egg corns for resources for both humans." And animals, and you know, and for the land. Um, so it's a little bit more of a larger picture. Um, and you know, each each nation and each people has different uses. Um, so it's a very diverse practice. But generally, when you say cultural fire, you're referring to the to indigenous fire. Is
3: that well, helpful? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a very. It, a great passage in the book. Um, We're talking with Manjula Martin, who has a new memoir. It's called The Last Fire Season, A Personal and Pyronatural History. She talks about living with wildfire year-round and what we Californians have a a kind of terrifying coexistence with. We'd love to hear from you. Have you fled from a wildfire? And what was that experience like? Have you adapted to living year-round with the threat of wildfire? And what habits have you formed? And Just generally, what what are your feelings about the impact of climate change and how are you navigating that day to day? You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels at kqed.forum or you can give us a call 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. So, you know, there's this dread that we feel when we see these walls of fire. And, you know, I recall just looking at the maps constantly during this time. I didn't have um, skin in the game in terms of like having a house that was subject to the fire, but I was you couldn't get to avoid it um, here in the city. And there is a word for this um, kind of dread. solostalgia, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. What is that and how does that explain how we're feeling about climate change, Manjula?
2: Yeah, so Nostalgia was coined by um, a guy named Glenn Albrecht, who's an academic, um, uh, I think he's Australian. Um, and it's sort of a word for nostalgia for the place where you live, um, because it's been changed uh, physically and environmentally. Um, so it's sort of like a grief for a home um, when you're still in the home, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> It's kind of a way to put it. Um, and I think it's a really apt term. It's it's used a lot now talking about, you know, what people variously call like uh, climate grief or climate anxiety. Um, and, you know, the idea of sort of knowing that an environment and that the environment you live in and you love has changed sometimes irrevocably um, and is continuing to do so is a really intense emotion, as we all know. Um, and I would argue that like anyone alive on the planet right now can feel that in some way because of climate change you know mm-hmm. and that way we kind of we all have skin in the
3: game right mm-hmm. absolutely well you you were saying earlier that you know for various reasons you might you might have thought okay, this is not going to affect me you know I have various privileges um, and then disaster does come because you are fleeing this fire and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that magical thinking that climate change, I'm going to be able to skirt it somehow, but really we can't.
2: Yeah. um, I mean, I think that's something that more and more people are realizing every day. There are a lot of people um, around the world and in this country who have known that um, for quite some time. And some of us are newer to that experience. Um, But I do think there's this sort of interesting magical thinking around it where you're like, I guess like this winter is a great example. And last winter, like it rained a lot here, right?
6: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had, like at the grocery store or whatever, where people are like, oh, it's raining. I'm so glad that's over, meaning like fire, you know? And I've been like, well, not to be, you know, not to rain on your parade, but um, (laughs) it's not over. And also, you know, extreme rain is very actually very much linked to cycles of extreme fire. Like just because it rains doesn't mean the fires are going to be over. And it also might make the fires worse in some ways. And, you know, they're all part of the same cycle. Um, And I found that really sort of like frustrating as I was going about writing this book and just feeling like it was like either you have sort of this – kind of unwarranted hope where you're like, it's gonna be fine. Or it's like, you know, it's the end of the world.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And
2: everyone's reality is actually in between those things. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that's why when, you know, the local fire department says it's the end of fire season, it's sort of a relief, right? I mean, it
2: is. I feel that too. Yeah. yeah. I was actually in the studio recording my audiobook. I got Mm -hmm. the chance to to do the narration for my audiobook, which was an amazing experience and very humbling. and, like, as I was in the studio, like, a
3: friend texted me and was like,
2: they just declared the fire season over. And I had felt this, like, <laughs> rush of relief. It's, um, an, it's, yeah. it's an
3: omen. It's a sign. Well, we're talking with Manjula Martin about her new book, The Last Fire Season. She, she did the audiobook, so look for that. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. Stay tuned for more Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Grace Swan. in Fermina Kim. We're talking with Manjula Martin. She has a new memoir, The Last Fire Season, a personal and pyronatural history. In it, she writes about the uneasy and at times terrifying coexistence Californians have with fire. Martin's also the co-author with her father, Orrin Martin, of Fruit Trees for Every Garden, which won the 2020 American Horticultural Society Book Award. We'd love to hear from you. How are you navigating your feelings about a year-round fire season, the threat of wildfire? What habits have you formed? What rituals have you changed? And if you fled from wildfire, what was that experience like and how has that experience impacted your day-to-day life? You can email your comments and questions to KQED at Forum, and you can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Manjula, one of the through lines of your story is your own journey with pain and recovery from kind of a harrowing medical experience and I wondered how did that pain root you to the land and um its surroundings.
2: Yeah, um you know, at the same time that I uh moved to the woods, I experienced as you said a harrowing medical mm. crisis. Um Uh, which is a very long story, but the short version of it is that um, I had an IUD as birth control that malfunctioned that led to many different sort of side effects and procedures culminating in a hysterectomy. And uh, after that I had chronic pain. The pain from all those experiences never really went away. Um, And interestingly as I was trying to recover from those experiences the wildfire crisis was sort of ramping up And I was also getting really into gardening, as we talked about before. Um, And sort of the only place that I felt good was in my garden. And I don't mean physically good, because I still didn't feel great. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But um, there was just this very sort of real experience of like interacting with the land in this way and sort of appreciating its beauty um, that I found to be very restorative. And the interesting thing about that, I mean, I think that's a pretty common experience. Um, You know, people find all kinds of healing in nature. Um, But to me, what was really interesting was the ways in which sort of it felt to me like there was a, a push and pull in the act of gardening that sort of involved these cycles of like, you know, like when you prune a tree, you have to cut it back really hard. And it when the first time I went to prune after my surgeries, I didn't want to do it because I was like, I don't want to hurt it. Mm. <laughs> you know right, right. Um, And so sort of finding these like almost like darker ways of interacting with the landscape, understanding that it's not just like a straight, uh, rosy metaphor of like, nature is healing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, nature is healing. Um, but it is also really complicated and really sort of, dark in some ways. And to me, that really mirrored the kind of darkness that I was seeing with climate change and with fires. um, And that sort of that despair, honestly. Um, And I found that actually to be a really strong way to connect all of those things. And it didn't lead me to sort of further despair, it actually allowed me to see how everything was in fact connected and allowed me to understand that, like, my body is actually Part of this environment. It's part, like, I am a part of nature. Um, And I think that's something that um, humans often forget.
3: Yeah, well, you write to survive the experience of what happened to my body. I needed beauty and I found it in flowers. And then you were like deadheading like crazy.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I kind of turned into a killer, as Max says. Um, I was like very, very hesitant to inflict what I perceived to be injury on plants. And Mm. then And then I got kind of addicted to it. And I think that that actually taught me a lot about, first of all, how tough the natural world is. Um, You know, we talk about how, like, with climate change, it feels like the end of the world. But actually, the world is going to be fine. It's us who may not be fine. Um, It's going to change, but it it will survive, you know, this. Um, Yeah, and so then I get kind of like I go too far the other way. And I start sort (laughs) of, you know... um, Max calls me a killer. <laughs> well, you're like
3: having an Edward Scissorhands moment. That's how I perceived it a little bit. It's like, you know. Music. I mean,
2: at times it can be like that. Yeah. Um, well, um, but again, I think that's an interesting mirror to sort of the ways in which people um, can both injure and love something at the same mm-hmm.
3: time. Well, you write that a damaged body was a new body, one still to discover what are you still discovering about your body in terms of this experience of, um, I think, chronic pain?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, it was funny. When I went into writing this book, I think I had some sort of idea that, like, maybe it would heal me. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, and it didn't heal me. But... Um, the process of writing is very physically difficult. So I did have like a little bit of a rebound after I finished the book and was able to do more physical activity, um, which was kind of amazing. Um, But I think the thing that, that, that really sticks with me is that like, to me, like a lot of this book is about the idea of living in the mess of the moment, you know, learning how to sort of live in that in-between, like in-between the the magical thinking and the horrible despair, right? Um, and I think that I, I have really learned how to do that in some ways from my chronic pain condition. Um, There's a point in the book at which I realized, like, oh, wait, I actually know how to do this. (laughs) Mm. I do it every day, you know. And I should add, like, I'm rather hesitant to, like, take messages from physical injury and illness because often, you know, that is not the case. And I think it can be sort of dangerous to imply any sense of, like, moral or value to illness because it's – really not like that. But for me, that was something that I did learn.
3: Hmm. Well, I kind of appreciate how you describe writing a book as very challenging, really difficult. Uh, (laughs) Because sometimes, you know, writers are like, ah, I just, I wrote it in six weeks. It was just so easy. Um, And I wonder about the challenge of writing about elements that we are so familiar with and making that your own. Like, people have been writing about fire for thousands of years. And, you know, there was that moment when the sky turned orange. And everyone seemed to be grasping for ways to describe it. I mean, there, as you point out in your book, there were a lot of hashtags that came of hashtags, out of that day. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in trying to describe fire and rain and smoke, what what's the challenge there?
2: Oh, it's very challenging because um, obviously you, you want to sort of embody something, but you also don't want to give it qualities that it doesn't have. Um, I think one of the things that I set out to do when I started um, was to sort of challenge the way that fire is written about in sort of, you know, media accounts of disasters. Um, You know, we perceive fire as being sort of like this monstrous thing that is ravenous. It's like, you know, any news account uses like the same five words, verbs to describe fire, you know. Um, And I was really trying to, to reach beyond that and really think about what fire is and how it moves. Hmm. Um and you know sort of its qualities um an interesting thing that the casual reader wouldn't probably notice or care about, but when I set out to do the book um actually modeled there are four sections of the book, one for each month of the season, and I actually modeled each section on a different natural element mm-hmm. um so like August is water. There's a storm and I go to Yosemite and there's glaciers and it's hot and there's steam and everything. So there's this sort of thread of water running through it. Um, September is air, obviously, because that was the smoke month. Mm-hmm. Um, October is uh, what people would call spirit or ether, depending on how you define the elements. Um, and November is earth. And obviously the element running through those all is fire. Um, and so I, played with ways of describing fire that sort of corresponded to those elements particularly in the way fire moves so you'll see it sometimes in the book fire is like you know it's cascading or it's like pouring across a landscape um other times it's like rooted and it's blooming you know um and really just sort of trying to ground the language of the book in in the actual elements um that was really important to me because i think you know one of the things that we tend to forget with all of our fear and anxiety is that um, fire is an essential element. It's part of the earth and it's part of our lives and it's deeply linked to human evolution and human survival. Um, And you know, honestly, fire has far more of a right to be here in California than I do.
3: (laughs) Mm, Right. True. Well, there is a passage that I was really taken by, and I just want to read a little bit of it because I thought it was so good. And it's about smoke, actually. And you write, smoke could create its own weather, clouds, and lightning. It bungled weather prediction equipment and algorithms. Smoke could get Smoke could make moths turn color. It could change skin from young to old. It could relay messages. It also followed beauty, people said. In the kitchen, smoke could render food a delicacy or a disaster. Outside, smoke could crack open seeds that had been dormant for decades waiting. Smoke was beautiful. It was blue and orange and sallow gray, the color of feathers and annihilation. In a fire, the black smoke was hotter, the white smoke wetter. In a fire, the smoke was usually what killed you first. I mean... I'm sure the way you read it in your Audible book was much better, but I mean, I think that really captures kind of what you're trying to do, which is give something new to something very, very old.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we have so much emotion invested, and emotion is obviously very important, but as a writer, it's my job to sort of see different angles, um, and I hope that I was able to do that some in the
3: book. Yeah. yeah, there's more of that in, in the last <laughs> fire season, everyone. Um, let's go quickly to the phones. we got Barbara from San Francisco. Barbara, welcome to Forum. Thank you for calling us.
6: Thank you so much. I have to congratulate your author on the courage in writing such a painful subject. I understand that her book will, will be released on January 16th. Um, I taught a job-seeking skills class to college level students at Treasure Island. They were uh, with the uh, Conservation Corps. And my, my main concern was that these youth were expendable. One of them fell asleep at my feet in the class, during class, he was so tired from fighting fires. And my concern is incarcerated people who are being used for this, who are getting just pennies on the dollar for their risking their
2: lives.
3: Mm, Thank you for sharing that, Barbara. And I mean, you share that concern as well, Manjula.
2: Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, the way that this crisis sort of interacts with other systems of inequality and um, the need for sort of equity and justice in many other parts of our society is just kind of, is just very glaring, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, in the book, you know, I follow a little bit the work of a, an organization in the North Bay called North Bay Jobs with Justice um, that my partner actually works with. Um, so this, is, I guess, is a plug. But um, um, and they're sort of doing really interesting work around like. Not only ensuring that workers on the front lines of climate change, like, have sort of safety and things like that, but also looking at what people call a just transition Mm -hmm. and thinking about ways um, to sort of change jobs into um, I guess what I would say is like more proactively um, generative than sort of reactive right? Mm. So instead of having all of these people who are like horribly exploited and having a terrible, terrible time and honestly like a lot of trauma among fighting world right now um, like is there a way that we can actually like work harder on mitigation and adaptation and actually sort of you know change that part of labor in addition to change it on the landscape.
3: Well, we're talking with Manjula Martin about her new memoir, The Last Fire Season. You're listening to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. So Manjula, you live among breathtaking beauty in the forest, uh, but you've asked yourself, should you stay? I mean, as you've observed, you can't run away from climate change, but maybe you don't need to be on the front lines of it. Where, where have you landed on that question?
2: That's a good question. And um, that is the number one question that anyone in the New York publishing industry has asked me <laughs> <laughs> throughout this process um, to which I always reply like, well, you have hurricanes. Uh, yes. um, <laughs> um, and I mean, I think that's a little bit snarky, but um, you know, the truth is that you cannot run away from climate change if you live on this planet. Um, and, you know, I think it's You know, on one hand, it's a very privileged question to be asking, like I actually could move if I wanted to. Um, And a lot of people don't have that choice. And uh, you know, the situation with like climate uh, refugees and climate migrants is poised to be one of the biggest crises of our time. Um, There's been a lot of really great journalism about that. Um, And still, you know, there's a lot of conversations like, yeah, where could we go? How could we get away from the fire or the smoke? and, you know, we I had some of those thoughts and some of those conversations during the events of this book, and I'm sure I'll continue to have them. Um, and for me, it really came down to this question of responsibility. Hmm. Um, in the book, I talked to a, a woman who's a prescribed fire educator named Andrea Bustos, uh, who's originally from Ecuador, but she works at the, the Watershed Center in California. Um, and she she was like, you know, what would happen to your land if you left? Hmm. And by, I mean, by my land, I mean like my house, I don't mm-hmm. own land, mm-hmm. but like, <laughs> right. um, but you know, and I was like, huh, that's very interesting. Like, I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of people sort of seeking to return to natural environments lately, especially with COVID and stuff. And like, you know, really thinking about the question of like, what do I owe this place if I love it so much? Um, and how can I sort of try and set it up for success in the future, even if maybe that means that like, my house might burn down at some point, but like, what about the forest around it? The forest around it is going to burn. Can I, can I work in a way and act in a way that sets that forest up to survive a fire? even if it's like, maybe I wouldn't,
3: you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Judy writes, I live in a fairly rural neighborhood in Windsor. We're on a dead end street. And when the 2017 fires came through, we had to all evacuate out of this dead end into a main artery, which was clogged with other people evacuating. Yeah. When we returned home, we didn't have electricity. Many of us were without, were without water and it taught our neighborhood to act in unity. One neighbor tapped in the fire hydrant on our street so that we could hook up our hoses and get water to our houses. Another neighbor had a generator, and he let people borrow it for an hour or two to refresh cold. They refreshed the cold in refrigerators and freezers. It was a good feeling to know we had each other's backs. And that's kind of what you talk about in the end. I mean, you are very clear-eyed. You rather would less talk about hope, which you find fake, and more about <laughs> determination. And in the last minute, can you tell us about how hope wasn't a guiding aspect of your lived existence? What is it that then carries you on? Um, I think, you know,
2: the word hope has become this sort of like signifier of maybe like a an imaginary, you know, like rainbow happy ending um, that honestly just isn't happening for us in climate change. Um, and I think instead of being like upset about that, obviously it's upsetting, um, <laughs> but um, I think there's so much more possibility found in actually The relationships that are formed in these situations, like, uh, you know, your neighbors in Windsor, um, the ways that people sort of interact within the crisis, I think, is actually much more hopeful to me than some sort of of idea of, like, we're going to solve climate change or we're going to stop wildfire. Like, you know, because honestly, we might not.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But that, I think that's true. I mean, I think you said, I found hope to be more rigid than strength. And the fit, facing the fact of climate change, I experienced determination, awe, and a strong sense of community, which is just the right way to end this show. Manjula Martin, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much.
3: We've been talking with Modula Martin, whose new memoir is The Last Fire Season of Personal and Pyro-Natural History. It comes out on January 16th and is available for pre-order at an independent bookstore near you. And you can see Manjula in person on January 13th at the Point Reyes Bookstore, on January 16th at City Lights in San Francisco, and on January 18th at the Russian River Bookstore in conversation with forum favorite Ed Yong. I want to thank Manjala for joining us. Thanks to our listeners for their calls and comments. And go get that book. It's a good one. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim.